This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. N Plus One's brand new issue, Transmission, is now available in print and online, and is full of great pieces that just might be perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that might be of particular interest is former Dig guest Ari Brostov's review of Vivian Gornick's The Romance of American Communism, which was reissued this spring by Verso Books. In the essay, Brostov considers the centrality of the family unit within the mid-century American Communist Party and in contemporary left organizing, and reflects on their own family's political commitments and divides. Quote, McCarthyism tore many communist families apart, but only strengthened domestic ties in others. Ejected from the public sphere, party life was pushed more deeply into the private one, writes Brostov. Quote, Sometimes I worried I didn't have the right genes to be a leftist. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year's subscription to N Plus One in print. Go to nplusonemag.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig at checkout. That's one word, the dig. You'll get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's NPLUS. O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. And just to briefly editorialize, I started reading the issue yesterday, and it's incredible. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Right now is an incredible moment to read Johanna Fernandez's new book, The Young Lords, A Radical History. The Lords were the Puerto Rican, but also more generally Latino and also Black American counterpart to the Black Panther Party. They emerged among young gang members in Chicago and radicalized students in New York. They confronted an unfolding economic crisis shaped by segregation and deindustrialization. And also, of course, they confronted the brutal police departments that enforced the divided post-war order. They did so while embracing a universalist form of revolutionary nationalism that linked the fates of oppressed people of all races everywhere, from the independence struggle on the island of Puerto Rico to the revolts sweeping the third world to black, Latino, and also white U.S. working class and poor people. From 1947 to 1970, Fernandez writes that the Puerto Rican Great Migration dispersed one-third of the island's people to the United States, many to New York neighborhoods from East Harlem and the Lower East Side in Manhattan up to the Bronx. This mass migration was one part of a massive state-sponsored spatial reorganization of American capitalism, the Black Great Migration North, the mass white and capitalist migration to the suburbs and to the Sun Belt, and the resulting urban deindustrialization. This complex process of urbanization, uneven proletarianization, and then systematic unemployment faced by Puerto Rican and black migrants alike made the conditions that attracted thousands of black and Latino youth to radical politics. Fernandez writes, quote, 
like the white student-led sector of the New Left, the seeds of these movements were also sown in the post-war years. They developed in response to the poverty produced by the flight of industries to the suburbs, which in turn created a class of permanently unemployed and discouraged young workers of color, an unprecedented development in modern urban history. The Young Lords took shape amid the contradictions of the post-war New Deal order, as the war on poverty, while fleeting and far too constrained, nonetheless opened new radical possibilities, particularly in its emphasis on maximum feasible participation of community members in community programs. Referring to one such critical organization, Fernandez writes, quote, Mobilization for Youth, MYF, in New York was an important site that exposed young people to politics, among them some who would later join the Young Lords. In the 1950s, the organization had been a haven for radical psychologists and other professionals, some self-described communists and socialists, who had been driven away from activism by McCarthyism. But its success with deviant youth drew attention and funding from President Kennedy's Committee on Juvenile Delinquency and the Ford Foundation, and its model was eventually adopted by the War on Poverty's Community Action Programs. Francis Fox Piven worked at MYF. So did Argentine theater director Osvaldo Riofrancos, my partner Thea Riofrancos' grandfather, who taught pantomime and comedy in the 1960s at Club 169 on the Lower East Side, where affluent youth were explicitly barred from entry. Fernandez continues, quote, As administrators of War on Poverty-funded programs engaged in activism that pushed the boundaries of civic participation, many young people gained organizational and leadership skills in the resulting projects. The founding members of the BPP, for example, wrote the main platform of that fledgling organization in the office of an anti-poverty program in Oakland in 1966. As a consequence of the McCarthy witch hunts of the 1950s and of the failure of the old left to speak to what was then a new movement with a protest style different from what it was accustomed to, they were working in the context of a weakened organized left tradition. Thus, fledgling activists were influenced by the institutionalized forms of struggle spearheaded by war on poverty programs and by radicalized social service reformists, even while they were beginning to develop a critique of the limitations of social service reform. In other words, the war on poverty, undermined by entrenched segregation and Cold War counterinsurgency wars in Vietnam and other such things, did create a space for organizing and service that ultimately exceeded the prescribed boundaries. I'm discussing this all in part because I didn't have sufficient time to discuss this subject, which I find fascinating with Johanna during the interview, but also because I think it's revealing how certain moments of radical politics do emerge from liberalism's contradictions. It's something we're certainly experiencing right now. The Young Lords provide important lessons today in both their successes and failures. Fernandez writes, quote, During the late 60s, the question of whether to build a vanguard party or the movement was a major topic of debate in the new left. Most understood these to be at odds with one another. The Young Lords attempted to do both. They devised and implemented broad reform campaigns— and simultaneously attempted to build a cadre organization. 
In the latter, members shared a revolutionary perspective, which they sought to amplify in theory and practice among the poor and working class in their community. Organizing for short-term radicalizing reforms, serving the people to meet their needs, and building the sorts of radical and powerful organizations that we need to transform society need not be posed as mutually exclusive options. We've got to do it all, and for a few incredible years, the Young Lords did just that. Briefly, Johanna Fernandez's Young Lords book is our Dig Book Club this month, our third. We've had Kim Phillips Fine and Mike Davis. If you want to meet Johanna and other Dig listeners to discuss, please visit thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club to join or start a Dig book club. Again, that's thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. You can join an already existing Dig book club on Zoom or start your own. And if you do want to support this podcast, which is made possible by Dig listeners like you, you really should do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We put this podcast out for free with no paywall to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to support us do so. So if you have not done so yet, please make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Johanna Fernandez, professor of history at Baruch College of the City University of New York and the author of The Young Lords, A Radical History, out now from University of North Carolina Press. Johanna Fernandez, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so very much, Daniel, for the invitation. The Young Lord story is a complex one for a variety of reasons, but in part because the group has two different origin points, interconnected origin points, Chicago, and then perhaps ultimately more consequentially, New York. But I want to start with the first Young Lords organization in Chicago, and it came out of the Young Lords Puerto Rican street gang. Explain how that gang took root in 1959 in the segregated streets of a deindustrializing Chicago, and how a, a young man named Chacha Jimenez guided by the politics of this radical organization in the city, the Latin American Defense Organization, or LADO, how he managed to lead this transformation of a street gang into a radical political organization. Okay, so where do we start? We start in the post-war period at a moment when Puerto Ricans, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans from the South and Southwest but also Native Americans and poor whites from Appalachia are migrating to Northern cities like Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. And in Chicago, the youth who are part of uh, this very complex migration that transforms uh, the racial character of the city are confronted with all of these pre-existing white gangs, these turf street organizations. And in many ways, the youth of this migration 
all of whom are people of color, are forced to create their own defense organizations in the streets to defend themselves against white racism, the, the racism of a disproportionately white ethnic working class in Chicago. One that you write was intensifying a lot at the time because amidst these migrations into Chicago, there was also white migration to the suburbs and a deindustrializing city. So you write that this kind of intensified the racist territoriality and the scapegoating of the new arrivals. Right. So deindustrialization, which begins after World War II, and this is important for your listening audience to consider because today most people think that deindustrialization is a thing that happened to the white working class. Mm-hmm. But in fact, deindustrialization first hit uh, the new migrants to the city in the post World War II period who are people of color. So it eviscerated and devastated those communities first before it moved on uh, to the rest of the working class in the United States in the 1970s, 80s. Uh, and even today. So yes, so deindustrialization, but also the gentrification of that period known as urban renewal, which was massively displacing people from dilapidated housing and creating new housing that was disproportionately built for the middle class, in part because the federal government contracted this job out to the capitalists. Essentially, they were supposed to have built homes for working class people, but disproportionately they built homes at a profit for the middle classes. In any case, so these forces, uh, the massive displacement of people from homes, the industrialization is creating a tense environment in the city and not all working class white folks are able to move to the suburbs. And those that remain in cities like Chicago don't look positively on this new wave of uh, migrants, people of color, that they see as people who are going to compete with them for scarce resources in the city. So Black American youth, Mexican American youth, Puerto Rican youth join these gangs in many ways for political reasons unarticulated as a, as a form of, of self-defense, but also in order to lay claim to space in their new environment, in their new homes, in their streets, on the schoolyard, in the schoolyard. And what's fascinating is that in the process of building these street organizations, Puerto Ricans and African-Americans gain a sense of belonging and gain a sense of self and pride in an environment in which they were perceived to be, because of racism and white supremacy in the United States, children of a lesser God. But in the context of the upheavals of the 1960s, these street organizations, some of them, acquire a political character, an explicitly political character. They're influenced by the politics of the period. In the case of the Young Lords, its leader, Jose Chacha Jimenez, who had been imprisoned multiple times over the course of the 1960s, 
ends up in prison precisely at the moment of the assassination of Martin Luther King and the riots that follow. And he gets radicalized in prison in that moment. And he listens in prison to the radio and the reportings on the activities of the Black Panther Party. And as he's listening to reports on the activities of the Black Panther Party and Fred Hampton in Chicago in 1968, he decides, this is what I want to do. Because Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and the Young Lords are also against the police. We know that the police are the pigs. And that's part of that lower lowercase p politics over public space that you're talking about, which involved not only racist white youth and urban renewal and segregation, but also, of course, policing. Absolutely. So these are young people who are out in the streets and they're constantly butting heads with the police. The police is constantly picking them up. And part of what Chacha Jimenez says is that once they pick you up once, you're on their list and you become a slave to uh, the system of policing and controlling and bringing to heel of um, our communities. So instinctively, I knew that the Black Panther Party was onto something important that we need needed to tap into. And to reference and go back to your little P conversation, I imagine you're referring to the P, the small P of politics. What I discovered is, is fascinating, which is that public spaces in Chicago were desegregated by street organizations that were becoming increasingly entitled in this era of civil rights and Black power, and would literally say to each other, these street organizations composed of people of color, youth in this case, like Chacha and the Puerto Rican and Mexican kids that he made common cause with in the street organization, they'd say, I don't want to go to the beach that's a million miles away, the segregated part of the beach where we were allowed to go. I want to go to the beach now. You want to go to the beach? Yeah, let's go to the beach. So they would walk to the segregated part of the beach where the white folks were and literally gain access to that space with brawn by fighting their way into these exclusively white public spaces. And that was fascinating to me. And they did this in schoolyards too, because we don't think of the struggle to desegregate spaces as one that was waged by people at the bottom of society and street organizations. And in a way that came about as a result of just the kind of immediate conditions of their existence, not at that point with the Young Lords Gang as a conscientiously political program. So part of what the Young Lords I interviewed narrated was that Puerto Ricans in particular were hard hit by urban renewal in Chicago. Their housing was bulldozed out of existence and they were forced into the outskirts of predominantly ethnic white neighborhoods. And that friction and battle politicized them unknowingly and forced them to fight for their right to live in the city 
So it politicized them with small p without an explicit theory and praxis about how to address social problems, understand society in order to transform it. They were just out in the streets at a moment when the civil rights and Black power movements were shifting consciousness, much like we see today. Social movements change history in part because they force a conversation in society that was previously underground and everyone is affected and influenced by it. And this was happening uh, in Chicago with, uh, with the Black, Puerto Rican, and Mexican gangs. They were claiming space because this was their time. Then there was the New York Young Lords, which becomes the, the epicenter of a group that would span the Northeast and ultimately reach all the way to the island of Puerto Rico, which turns out to be a major error that we'll get into in in more detail later. But but that group was formed by a rather different group of Puerto Rican youth. Many of them were students at SUNY Old Westbury who took inspiration from what Chacha and others were doing in Chicago after reading about them in the Black Panther newspaper. And then Chacha linked them up with a like-minded group on the Lower East Side. They were up more oriented towards East Harlem. Who was this New York group? And what led this group of young people from with a fairly different social composition to to join up with a former street gang in Chicago? And what did that merger look like? So I think what's important to draw from this period is that disciplined, influential movement organizations don't emerge out of nowhere. They usually come together out of networks of pre-existing groups of people who have a sense that they need to build something bigger in order to have an impact beyond their numbers. And that's exactly what happened in the late 60s with these networks of folks who were radicalized by the movements of the period, the women's movement, but also the Vietnam War. So in New York, SUNY Old Westbury is a college that's experimental. It seeks to draw folks from poor urban centers like East Harlem, Harlem, the South Bronx, into the university without a formal admissions process because universities are predominantly white and now there's a, an urgency to desegregate university spaces. So a fascinating group of people land at SUNY Old Westbury, among them Mickey Melendez, who's a kid from the Bronx, who's also active in anti-poverty programs in East Harlem. He gets recruited to SUNY Old Westbury, along with Denise Oliver, who's an African-American woman from New York, who had previously been at one of the HBCUs, got kicked out of the school because of her activism, and she landed in East Harlem teaching at the University of the Streets, a new... And who grew up in a left-wing family. And who grew up, she calls herself, a black red diaper baby. (laughs) Her father was one of the first black American actors to desegregate Broadway. She was part of the new left. Her uh, parents were uh, friendly followers of the CP, of the Communist Party. 
So she's teaching at the University of the Streets, which is a project that emerges to integrate high school kids who've been kicked out of school in East Harlem and Harlem into some kind of educational setting. So they're both recruited to SUNY Old Westbury in 1968 at the height of uh, the rebellions of this decade. And Mickey is just very interested in pulling people together. So he invites Felipe Luciano, who is a member of the Last Poets, a group that was pivotal in the world of spoken word poetry, which, as you might know, is the predecessor to hip hop. Uh, Felipe Luciano grew up in Harlem, is an Afro-Puerto Rican who mostly hangs out with African-Americans, Black Americans. He's dynamic. He's an orator. He's also been to prison because he too was in a gang and someone got killed in one of the scuffles in his neighborhood years prior. And he ended up in prison, but somehow he got out and now he was out influenced by the Black Power movement. But it's, it's artistic rendition. So Mickey Melendez invites Felipe Luciano to perform on campus. And he then says, well, why don't we also invite Juan Gonzalez. Juan Gonzalez is another Puerto Rican kid, student, young, who somehow found himself at the helm of the struggle at Columbia, the student strikes at Columbia in 1968. And who the vast majority of my listeners are probably familiar with today. Because he is the co-host of Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. And prior to that, he... Uh, wrote for the Daily News here in New York City. And in Philly, I think, no? And in Philadelphia, yeah. right. So so the point is that, that this uh, young man, Mickey Melendez, just sees the importance and significance of pulling together activists in different sites of struggle in the city together over a conversation of okay, how do we consolidate power? How do we come together in an organization to attempt to have a significant impact on the city? And so, as you said previously, they started meeting as students, very bright members of their cohort, the first generation of Puerto Rican and Black students to gain access to the university in the 1960s. They started, of course, as college students, many of whom had dropped out, they started a reading group, literally, that met regularly in East Harlem. And they read about Chacha Jimenez and the ways in which he had transformed the gang into a political organization in, I think, the, the June 7th, 1969 issue of the Black Panther Party newspaper. But this is what's important about Destroy. These young, dynamic, articulate Puerto Rican students in New York wanted to do something. They had come together. They wanted to launch struggles in the community rather than in the university, because that was the mentality, the political mentality of the, of the period. 
but they didn't know what to do, nor had they even dreamed of launching the Puerto Rican counterpart of the Black Panther Party. It took a gang that was as far away as possible as you can imagine from middle-class respectability to throw down with the most demeaned, hated, and militant organization of the 1960s, the Black Panther Party. Had that not happened in Chicago, and it happened because this Puerto Rican and Mexican gang had nothing to lose and understood that they had everything to gain by coming together with the most radical of Black groups working in the community in the 1960s, we wouldn't know who the Young Lords are today because clearly the Black Panther Party was the most iconic and possibly the most important organization of the Black power movement in the North. We've discussed this, how this this complex process of urbanization with great migration of both the Black great migration and the huge migration of of Puerto Ricans, particularly to New York, and then this process of uneven proletarianization and then rapid deproletarianization faced by Puerto Rican and Black migrants alike, even though they have these two very different kind of social characters, both the, the Chicago gang members and the New York students, exist within that context. And another key piece of context that they share that you point out is this second-generation immigrant in-betweenness, migrant in-betweenness, that you compare to what Du Bois called double consciousness. How did that contradictory position, alongside all those other conditions that we've discussed, nurture a generational cohort of Black and Latino and also, to some extent, Asian youth so ripe for radical politics? So the Young Lords were the children of migration. What I learned over the course of more than a decade of interviews was that the Young Lords, as children, experienced an organic radicalization because as the English-speaking children of Puerto Rican migrants who only spoke Spanish, they found themselves constantly in this position of interlocutor and translator for their parents in the hospitals, at the bank, at the welfare office, in the police department. And they got to experience viscerally without really understanding politically the hatred and racism deployed against Puerto Ricans and Black people by the city's institutions. And so this experience, I argue, formed an early radicalization, but also filled them with an anger against the system that they later organized and disciplined and came to understand politically through the theories that they adopted and embraced, the social theories uh, that influenced their politics, a mix of Marxism and the uh, theories of revolution emerging out of 
the decolonization movements and revolutions of that period. But that was an experience also shared by African-Americans who also migrated in large numbers into this city that for the first time ever in the history of cities, not just domestically, but internationally, was creating a permanent class of unemployed people as a consequence of deindustrialization and automation. And so part of what I argue in the book is that organizations like the Young Lords and the Black Panthers are encountering unprecedented conditions in the city, what sociologists call the urban crisis. And they are groping for an understanding of these conditions and responding to it, which is why the Black Panther Party identifies the lumpen proletariat as the most revolutionary class in society. In many ways, these young people were looking around, seeing this new development, identifying it as a new development, and attempting to respond and organ respond to it and organize against it. So I cite in the book a study conducted by one of the Bureau of Labor offices. Bureau of Labor Statistics? Yeah, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yes, thank you. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 1966, I believe, said that there was this new development of permanent unemployment and that unemployment was highest among Puerto Ricans. And they said, they cited 47% of uh, Puerto Ricans living in New York were either unemployed, underemployed, or permanently unemployed because an entire cohort of young Puerto Ricans had become disillusioned because they had been looking for jobs for over a year with no success. And so the conditions created in the city in the post-war period, which was creating, which created a city that was more segregated by race and divided by class than previously because of white migration. These conditions uh, bring folks together like Puerto Ricans and African-Americans in a neighborhood like East Harlem, which was literally a third African-American, a third Puerto Rican, and a third Italian-American. And so when the Young Lords emerge, in many ways, they came to replace uh, the activism of the Black Panthers, which went underground as a result of police and FBI repression and the, the imprisonment of the Black Panthers during the Panther 21 case, when the Young Lords started organizing around issues correspondent to the urban crisis, dilapidated housing, lead poisoning among children, dilapidated hospitals, police brutality, unemployment, hunger, the issues that they addressed and organized around were very attractive to, to all other folks living in the neighborhood, right? To Black Americans. So the Young Lords end up 
building a profoundly diverse organization ethnically. Yeah, remar- you write that remarkably more than a quarter of young lords were Black Americans, not Black Puerto Ricans. And, and the group and leadership had disproportionately high levels of Black people, Puerto Rican and Black American alike. Right. So in many ways, I think that because the young lords emerged at the end of this decade of great dreams, it reflected the best of the period, but also prefigured the new American society after the movements of that era. In many ways, it reflected the diverse demographic character of the new American city, of which Los Angeles probably and New York are the best expressions. So yes, the Young Lords membership was composed of Puerto Ricans, but also between 25 and a percent and a third of the organization was composed of African Americans and other Latinos that were increasingly migrating to the city. After the passage of that immigration law that prohibited discrimination. And what's fascinating is that this was a deliberately Puerto Rican nationalist organization that made room for these other folks. And these other folks didn't see that as a contradiction. And in fact, I asked a Panamanian member of the organization precisely this question, what the hell are you doing in a Puerto Rican organization, a a (laughs) self-proclaimed Puerto Rican revolutionary nationalist organization. And he said, this was the era when an Argentine revolutionary by the name of Che Guevara fought in the Cuban revolution. Right. And it was a period of phenomenal solidarity. Yeah, you write write that the Lord's 13-point program and platform made one of the first uses ever of the term Latino, and that they were a major force in popularizing and conceptualizing. And you write, quote, their rendition of the term underscored a shared political experience of regional underdevelopment produced by U.S. political and economic domination rather than contemporary appeals to Latinidad on the basis of language and culture alone. Yeah. They essentially argued what brings us together is a shared experience of oppression at the hands of U.S. imperialism. And the reason why we're all here is because of U.S. political and economic policies in Latin America, the support and funding of the United States, by the United States, of counter-revolutionary movements in places like Guatemala. And that's the basis uh, upon which we should come together. Yeah, and along those lines, and I think this is really important to emphasize that the the Young Lords, like the Black Panthers, were really not separatists in the way I think some people today might might think. As you referenced earlier, in February 1969, which was the same month that the Lords formed in Chicago with, with Fred Hampton's Chicago Black Panther Party's assistance, the Chicago BPP also formed this Rainbow Coalition that included the Young Lords and also, as you mentioned, the Young Patriots, this gang of white Appalachian migrant youth who, 
I knew about that. But what I didn't know is that they were in the mix because Chicago's Black Panther Party field secretary, Bob Lee, had worked with them as a gang counselor for this Great Society program, Volunteers in Service to America. It's a fascinating set of connections. It's fascinating. Yeah, Bob Lee, who's no longer with us, he's the the motor force behind this this collaboration and project that is attributed mostly to Fred Hampton, which is important because part of what we see in this history is that it's not individuals necessarily, but individuals coming together in a collective and putting their heads together that often creates the most dynamic and forward-looking projects for social transformation. It took different forces, the experience of Bob Lee, but also the dynamism of Fred Hampton to implement that dream through um, a dogged pursuit of common cause and ways to bring into political activism different sectors of oppressed people in Chicago. And that was the role of Fred Hampton. He was an itinerant preacher in many ways, an itinerant revolutionary. And that's what folks I interviewed in Chicago stressed, that Fred Hampton was humble, genuine about connecting with people, hearing their stories, uh, amplifying our common humanity, and growing the community organized around a revolutionary politics. And, and that was exemplary of this ideology of revolutionary nationalism. What was that ideology and how did it differ from this conservative cultural nationalism that, that both the Panthers and the Lords derided as pork chop nationalism? In many ways, the demographic character of the city, which becomes in the post-war period more segregated by race than ever before, is going to be reflected in the movements that emerge. White folks leave the city en masse, and increasingly in New York, Puerto Ricans and African Americans uh, form the majority of people who are in struggle. This is also the case in Chicago, just that in Chicago there are Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and African Americans. And this revolutionary nationalist politics essentially is an attempt to assert the humanity of racially oppressed people who've been marginalized and, they argue, colonized within the American empire in the belly of the beast. And so it's a politics to reclaim the history, the pride, the humanity of racially oppressed people that also argues that in order for us to obtain liberation as an internal colony within the United States, we're going to have to enter into a revolutionary process. In the case of the Young Lords, they were the only racialized group in the United States that could actually lay claim to an active colonized site, in this case, Puerto Rico. That was outside of the the continental United States proper. Outside of the continental United States proper, outside of the U.S. mainland. So in the case of uh, uh, the Young Lords, who were Puerto Rican revolutionary nationalists, 
that meant that they stood for the decolonization of Puerto Rico, its uh, revolutionary independence. But revolutionary nationalists also argue that folks were going to have to come together across racial lines to fight capitalism and that working people and poor people were the class capable of launching a revolutionary struggle, a victorious one against capitalism. So they were also self-proclaimed socialists. The logic of revolutionary nationalism suggested that in order for people who were deemed children of a lesser God by history in the Americas, racialized people, they needed to organize their own organizations and come into their own as human beings and politically as a prerequisite for a multi-ethnic and multi-racial class-based struggle. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction to highlight because it wasn't one or the other. The two, in the Lord's view, were mutually required of one another. Absolutely. And then in terms of the pork chop nationalism, if you could explain that distinction, you have a great quote from Richie Perez who who says, quote, Many of our people see that our culture has been destroyed by this country, and they react in an extreme way and become cultural nationalists whose sole purpose is to revive the culture of the Puerto Rican nation and to keep it alive. Our feeling is that nationalism is important, but pride alone is not going to free us. The ability to play congas and speak Spanish fluently is not going to stop landlords, is not going to stop the exploitation of our people on their jobs in every place else. They denounce pork chop nationalism, and that's a term that was coined by the Black Panther Party. And what's important about these revolutionary nationalist organizations of the period is that they were beholden and committed to amplifying the structural roots of oppression and exploitation. That's essentially it. That culture alone is not going to save us. The reason why our culture has been stripped from us is tied to the uh, the structures of settler colonial oppression. But stripping Puerto Ricans and African-Americans of their history and culture is not the objective of the colonial project or of capitalism. The object is exploitation, which requires the demonization and repression of the exploited and the people at the bottom of society. It's interesting because that that ideology was definitely shaped by the broader context of, of Third World Revolutions. But you write that it was also influenced by the older Communist Party Nation Within a Nation thesis, advanced by the Black American communist Harry Haywood, but, but ultimately adopted by the Comintern. Absolutely. So what's fascinating is that this Nation Within a Nation idea, I mean, in many ways, the, the language was altered somewhat in the 60s by 60s radicals, they suggested that oppressed people were a colony within a colony, or a colony within the headquarters of colonialism, the United States, although they called it a colony within a colony. What's hilarious is that in one of the interviews uh, I conducted, I learned that the Panthers and the Lords used to call the neighborhoods in which they organized the colony. I'm going back to the colony now, which is 
important because it gives you a sense of the impact of of the revolutions of the period on the consciousness of people fighting here in the United States. So in many ways, the Algerian revolution, the, the American war in Vietnam, that's what the Vietnamese called the Vietnam War, the struggles in India against British Empire, the Cuban revolution, they're in many ways determining the politics and theories of revolutionaries in, in this period, much like the Russian Revolution in an earlier period became the signature framework and politics that activists and the left of that generation used to understand their world. When I interviewed Black Panthers and Young Lords and even other people of the period, they didn't exactly understand that that concept of the nation within a nation had emerged in, pre- in the previous period, coined and developed by communists in Harlem. And, and, and part of that, I think, in, you emphasize this, and so, do, so does Max Elbaum in his book, Revolution in the Air, that the young lords like the rest of the new left were really operating in this context of a generational rupture with the old communist left. There was the Red Scare across the board. And then specifically in the case of the Puerto Rican pro-independence left, there was extremely severe repression after the movement launched armed attacks, including one on Congress in 1954 that actually wounded five congressmen. How did this intergeneral rupture shape the new left as a whole and the the Lords in particular? So yeah, there was an attempt on the part of the American ruling class to dismember the left and the memory and the lessons of the struggles last time, that there's a cyclical process in the United States of red scares. I'm thinking about the early 1920s and the aftermath of the, of the labor struggles of the late 19th century. Around Haymarket. Around the Haymarket uh, affair. But then rebellion and radicalization emerges once again in the run-up to World War I. And World War I is important in part because at the start of the war, we saw domestically and around the world the largest anti-war movement ever seen before. And we know that Eugene Debs was arrested for giving an anti-war speech during the war, it was a moment of uh, the expansion of revolutionary ideas. The Russian Revolution happens during World War I, and then you have the Palmer raids immediately thereafter, repression, the deportation of union organizers, communists and socialists, and everyone in between, and the rise of the new clan that the Palmer raids um, and this authoritarian policy from the top of American society. And sort of xenophobic, 100% Americanism. Exactly. Absolutely. So what's fascinating is that repression in the United States has historically been married to, to racism and nativism. They go hand in hand. And so in the 1930s, we have another situation of of upheaval. These labor 
strikes, the sit-ins, a neo-revolutionary situation in which workers are literally arming themselves, taking to the streets to protect um, the picket line and to hold back the police and the National Guard that's called out to break their strikes. And the CP grows exponentially, influences public consciousness massively. And then what we have is, you know, an unforgiving Red Scare after, after World War II that literally uproots that tradition from American society uh, through the blacklists and the HUAC hearings. So the question is, you know, how did, how did that severing of the left influence uh, the rise of the new left? In terms of learning lessons about what to do and what not to do, instead they sort of had to reinvent the wheel. You know, I think, I think they did and they didn't. I think this is a complex question because we think that the new left came into being solely because of the efforts of this very young generation, the baby boomers. But the fact is that the new left grew up in the, you know, in the bosom of the old left and the union movement, right? The Port Huron Statement was written in the headquarters of one of the unions, I forget now, the UAW. And people like Denise Oliver, who is African-American and the first woman elected to the leadership body of uh, the Young Lords, she was hugely influenced by conversations in her living room held by her father and his comrades all of whom were part of the old left. So she was trained as an informal Marxist merely by being in the presence of, um, of these people who continued to talk politics even at the height um, of McCarthyism. And core members, some of them were old CPers, uh, and an organization uh, an anti-poverty organization or a predecessor organization to the anti-poverty programs, Mobilization for Youth. My my partner, Theorio Franco's grandfather, was involved in one of their Latino-oriented youth clubs on the Lower East Side, whose motto, if I recall correctly, was uh, no rich kids allowed. <laughs> oh, oh, no rich kids allowed. Exactly. So that organization apparently was filled with, you know, old CPers and the old left and influenced certainly the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. But it was mobilization for youth that took a bus of Puerto Ricans and Black Americans to the moratorium conference in, in Denver, Colorado. The, the, the Chicago, the Chicano Youth Liberation Conference. The Chicano, yeah, the Chicano Youth Liberation Conference. Um, so there were organizational ruptures and new organizations had to be built from scratch, like SDS and uh, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers and SNCC. But individuals like Ella Baker were foundational to, to the emergence of SNCC. So those ideas of collective struggle and the lessons of previous struggles 
you know, they, they, they make their way. And I think we're seeing that uh, today. And I think that one of the most important differences between the old left and the new is this commitment on the part of the new left to individual liberation. To a, uh, it's a deliberate commitment to remake the individual in society in ways that we see happening certainly during the Russian Revolution and in the process of movement work, I'm sure throughout history, there's a process of um, shedding the old ideas as you acquire the new. But it seems that the, that the new left was just committed to this notion of individual liberation. It probably has something to do with the middle-class character um, of the new left, but that's one of the many ways in which this rupture manifests itself, but also the other major difference between the old and the new left is that the working class is no longer the site of revolutionary struggle, at least not immediately, but rather the community. Yeah, and which brings us back to the Lumpen thesis, which you mentioned earlier, and it, it's drawing on being adapting this Mar- Marxist term of the Lumpen proletariat, which by which they meant that that those who are on society's margins, people unemployed and perhaps involved in crime, that they, rather than the working class, had the greatest revolutionary potential. And you write, quote, known as the Black Panther's Lumpen thesis, and advanced especially by Eldridge Cleaver, the position romanticized the most oppressed sectors of society as those most likely to resist. The irony, however, was that the leaders of both organizations were not the street people, but were among the most educated young working-class Puerto Ricans and Black Americans of their generation. And even more ironically, perhaps, the New York Lords ultimately broke with the Chicago Young Lords organization, which, unlike them, them actually did draw its leadership from the Lumpen class. But, but on the other hand, as you mentioned earlier, the Lumpen thesis didn't come out of nowhere. It did emerge in response to these very real new conditions of poor people of color being economically and spatially isolated in the post-war segregated, deindustrializing metropolis, and also to the seeming conservatism of the labor aristocracy amid the affluent society. What did that thesis understand and misunderstand about the conditions of their time? Uh, well, the Lumpen thesis, as you articulated, and as I tried to explain in the book, and others have have suggested, although I I think that I'm the first historian to link political economy with the politics of the period in this very deliberate way, in part because I was obsessed with deindustrialization, probably because those books were being written when I was in college. So when I got to the PhD, that was part that had been part of my formation. And I was also a Marxist. Uh, What the Young Lords and Black Panthers got right, which they are not given credit for, is identifying this class, right? Because it's not, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is writing about this, it's identifying it, but it's quickly moving on to other things. Uh, that are wrong with the city. It's almost a footnote in the study, but these very young rising revolutionaries, people of color, 
are saying, yeah, this is happening and it's the product of deindustrialization, but also automation. They identified, interestingly enough, automation more than they did deindustrialization. And it's an attempt on the part of American society to do away with us because we are no longer of value or segments within our society are no longer of value. That is profoundly accurate because part of what we see happening in the 1980s is the mass warehousing of this redundant population. And they're also getting it right with a much more sophisticated analysis of what's going on in the city than what we see coming out of things like the Moynihan Report. Oh, absolutely. That's published just a few years before their formation, which identifies these problems as as inherent to families. Cultural. Cultural, rather than emerging from systems of power that are being imposed upon those people. Absolutely. So that's what they got right. What they got wrong is that that's in many ways one of the weakest classes in society, a class that is undisciplined and a class that can be manipulated and was manipulated by the counterintelligence program of the FBI. This was a class that was used by by COINTELPRA to uh, disorient, infiltrate, destroy these organizations. We're talking about the members of the lumpen proletariat, people with criminal records, criminal in quotations, because part of what the Young Lords argued, which you could argue that when the United States dropped more bombs on Vietnam than were dropped by all sides combined during World War II, that was the real criminal. In any case, these people who are picked up and put in prison, who have outstanding records, can be easily manipulated to um, do the bidding of the state. And that's exactly what happened. We know, for example, that Fred Hampton was killed in part because his bodyguard had given the police the coordinates of where he slept in the house that they took hold of and attacked on December 4th, 1969. And he was, he was, he was, he was one of these people, part of the lumpen proletariat, previously imprisoned that the police and COINTELPRO cut a deal with. Another thing that you suggest they didn't quite grasp with the, with the lumpen emphasis and the, rom- the romanticization of, of the most excluded, the people most on the margins, was that they didn't learn from their, their own situation as working class students, that that contradictory situation was one that had made them revolutionaries. And that another irony you mentioned was that a new period of worker militancy was indeed getting underway. Absolutely. And in many ways, these organizations are not static. Both the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, currents within these organizations move to a more working class orientation later on in the 1970s. But yes, the perfect example of of this is in the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM, which organizes in the automobile industry at the point of production. It organizes Black workers. And... And there is an uptick in labor struggle in the early 70s 
in part because the civil rights and black power movements, but also the Vietnam War, are having a radicalizing effect on the working class. Particularly young workers in places like like Lordstown, most perhaps most iconically. Absolutely. And part of what I argue in the book is that there's there's also a new cohort of workers who are pivotal to what happens in the city. Interestingly enough, this was another issue that I became obsessed with. I was just trying to understand what would the hell was going on in the hospitals outside of the organizing efforts of 1199. But part of what happens in the 1960s is that in response to deindustrialization, federal policy attempts to develop new employment. And of course, the hospitals are, and the medical industry is the fastest growing industry in the country. And so all of these technical jobs emerge which are in part funded by OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity, as a result of the war on poverty. And they create these technical jobs that hire mostly young people of color who graduate from high school but don't go to college. And so they enter the hospitals and they too are influenced by the civil rights and Black power movement and by the Vietnam War, and they attempt to organize where they're at, and they end up organizing in many ways independently from uh, the unions. But we see a parallel situation happening right now. In the aftermath of, or in the context of the failure of the state during the pandemic, workers awakened. And it was a small layer of the working class. But when GE workers had a protest, that was an incredible moment that we hadn't seen before of workers actually realizing their power in society as those who produce the goods and services. Um, So this crisis of the pandemic propelled Amazon workers to take a stand around PPEs and worker safety. And workers at UPS did the same. And I don't know if you know this, but I only know this because I'm the host of a morning show, so I have to read the news meticulously, something I have never done before. But workers at at UPS literally drafted a a document, a one-page document that said, This is what we need in order to ensure that we are not infected. And we want to create a committee of workers to make sure that what we need is in place because we can't rely on the bosses. That's exactly what the Young Lords did, but also workers at places like Metropolitan and Lincoln Hospital. They organized committees to take care of business because no one else was going to do it. A big focus of the Lord's political and service work, which we were just discussing, was was healthcare. It was inspired by the Cuban medical system and the Cuban Revolution's indictment of structural conditions that produce disease, sickness. The Lords really did a remarkable amount of their work on on these sorts of issues. They tested people for lead poisoning, played a huge role in forcing the city to finally address the crisis. They had a tuberculosis campaign that not only tested people, but also hijacked a city mobile x-ray truck, which they then ran themselves. They pushed for community control at Metropolitan Hospital in East Harlem, 
worked with hospital workers who had formed the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement, HRUM, which was formed after they met with members of the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, or DRUM. And HRUM ultimately comes part of the Young Lords. And I guess the the kind of apex of their, their struggle with the healthcare system in New York was this huge fight they had with Lincoln Hospital, which they took over and occupied for 12 hours. There's a lot there, but to start out, why did the Lords focus on on health and health care, and how did that issue help them bridge service and political struggle, and also community and worker politics? That's a question that I became obsessed with over the course of probably a decade. I wanted to understand why health. How is it that this organization, but also the Black Panthers, launched so many campaigns around around issues of health because when you think about the black power movement or even the civil rights movement no one's thinking about feeding children or fighting lead poisoning or taking over tuberculosis trucks or even organizing ambulance systems as we saw with the black panther party and that's one of the understudied elements of the militancy of the Black Panthers. But I think it's important to start with today because there was a lot of talk about how Black and brown people were more likely to become severely ill from COVID-19 just a few months ago due to the high rates of underlying or pre-existing medical conditions among racialized people or these communities. And one of the things I realized when I was just listening to this was that mainstream discussions of this phenomenon was tinged with race ideology, essentially the distorted notion that black and brown people in the United States are biologically predisposed to illness because of race. And so when I was listening to this, I was thinking, well, not so much. And in fact, the Young Lords more accurately defined this phenomenon of pre-existing medical conditions, and they identified its social and economic origins. And they called this thing that we today are calling pre-existing medical conditions, they called it diseases of poverty. And they linked that term to the high mortality rates among people of color and they said, well, you know what, this, this has everything to do with the life and death hazards of care in the city's dilapidated public hospitals. That's why we have more Black, American, and Puerto Rican people dying than white Americans. But they also drew from the Cuban experience, and that term they used, diseases of poverty, was one that was coined by the revolutionaries of the Cuban Revolution in 1959. And the term refers to diseases that are pervasive because of poor nutrition, the hardship and stresses of working and living conditions, but also the impact of structural displacement and and run-of-the-mill poverty on our health that produced diabetes uh, and hypertension. 
They also identified tuberculosis, lead poisoning, asthma, I'm forgetting them now, drug addiction, domestic violence, and poverty in old age as diseases of poverty. So, I mean, I think this is important and it's relevant to today. So the question is, why issues of health? I think you mentioned this, or we touched on this conversation earlier. And part of what I realized is that this role that the young lords played as indispensable language and cultural interpreters uh, for their generation, a group of people, young people, children really, who helped their parents and neighbors navigate the bureaucratic institutions of New York, the in-hospital bureaucratic institutions of New York, the hospitals among them. This experience among these children predisposed them when they grew up to being interested in this crisis in the hospitals. So that's one of the reasons why I say that health was so pivotal to the militancy of late 60s radicals in urban centers, especially this cohort, because as children, they frequented the hospitals alongside of their parents. And the New York hospitals were probably among the most frequented of such institutions by the new migrants, second only probably to the public schools. And this is connected to this double consciousness concept uh, because the young lords, if you listen to the interviews that I conducted with them, but that others conducted during the period, they describe enduring alienating visits to the hospital as children. Um, And as intermediaries for their parents, they were able to perceive at a very young age how these institutions viewed them versus how they viewed themselves. And as children, they witnessed the stigma and indignity of discrimination, of long waiting hours at the emergency room, and the racial discrimination their parents experienced and received, all in the context of illness, when people feel most human and most vulnerable. And the young lords during the period, one of them said something like, we are committed to the struggle for dignity in healthcare because this is a moment when, when we are most human. They were like little philosophers. So these experiences that they witnessed rankled them to the core. But there were other objective structural reasons why health became so central to militant activism during the period. This was a moment like no other in the history of the city here in the United States. There were demographic shifts and economic changes in the post-war period that created a health crisis of epic proportion in the city, but also for its new poor and working class people. So there were structural changes that produced a poorer population that was bound to be sicker, right? We talked about what these structural changes look like. 
Operation Bootstrap, which was Puerto Rico's industrialization project led by the United States, which displaced more peasants on the island than could be absorbed by the new factories of the new industrial economy on the island. So Operation Bootstrap, which was the industrialization project of the island, had an escape valve literally built into it, and that was migration of this redundant labor force from the island to cities like New York and Chicago. But once here, these folks who had been displaced from the island were also within a decade or so beginning to be displaced by deindustrialization in their new home. There was also urban renewal, right? Urban renewal was the gentrification uh, crisis of that period. That's what it was called. And Puerto Ricans and Black Americans called it Negro and Spick removal because the cities with collaboration from the federal government were tearing down quote unquote dilapidated neighborhoods and housing and building disproportionately middle-class housing instead that did not provide sufficient housing for the people, working class people, Puerto Rican and African-Americans who had been displaced. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Me Too, Essays on Sex, Authority, and the Mess of Life by Joanne Wypajewski. From the criminalization of HIV to the frenzy over pedophile priests, from unexamined assumptions about the murder of Matthew Shepard to the accusations made against Woody Allen, from Brett Kavanaugh to Abu Ghraib, Wypajewski takes some of the most famous stories of recent decades and turns them inside out. The result is a searing indictment of modern sexual politics. She exposes the myriad ways moral panic and a punitive culture are intertwined, considering along the way the nature of pleasure, censorship, self-deception, memory, and much more. What emerges is a picture of a culture in which crude morality plays, acted out in the media, have contributed to an imprisoning embrace of the repressive power of the state. Politics exists in the mess of life. Sex does too, Wypajewski insists. And so must sexual politics, if it is to make any sense at all. What we don't talk about when we talk about Me Too. Essays on Sex, Authority, and the Mess of Life by Joanne Wypajewski. Out now from Verso Books. The Lords were able to make common cause with poor patients, which I think is kind of where they started out from the community, but then also working class hospital staff, which were becoming an increasingly core part of the, by the 1960s, unionizing urban working class in New York. And then also, in the case of Lincoln Hospital, this cohort of radical white resident doctors. How did they build these these coalitions and what did they manage to win? I think it's important to note that the hospitals are a new engine 
of local economies in the post-war period. In the process of expanding medical care for profit, the working class uh, finds itself growing in um, the medical industry. And in the cities, what we see happening is that a large number of women of color become part of the heavily exploited army of poorly paid nurses assistants and orderlies. But also you have male janitors. Right. And people cooking in the cafeterias, all of those sorts of jobs that are critical to the medical industry, but the lowest paid. The lowest paid. So this is part of what I mentioned previously, that this new working class in this expanding industry is being hugely influenced and radicalized by the civil rights and Black power movement. And in fact, in the late 1950s, 1199, the Health and Hospitals Union launches its campaigns successfully by linking better wages and conditions to the struggle for racial equality and civil rights. And it becomes known as a soul union. But 1199 is begins to organize workers, not in the public sector. It begins to organize healthcare workers in the private hospitals. And the public hospitals where increasingly this army of low-paid workers are hired, disproportionately women of color, they feel left out of the, of the conversation. And in fact, at some point, this is what's just fascinating for me to discover, and I wish I knew where it is in my book. But they summon Bernie Sanders <laughs> to Lincoln Hospital. The Young Lords at this point, late 60s, they are fabulously successful in East Harlem as a result of their lead poisoning uh, campaign, campaign against um the lead poisoning of children in tenement homes. They had initiated a door-to-door project alongside of doctors at Metropolitan Hospital uh, and technicians, radicalized doctors, right? So everyone's being radicalized in this period, much like we see today. And it's important to note, footnote, that in 1969, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, a poll of uh, students across the country determined that uh, 2 million uh, American students believed in the necessity of building a revolutionary party. So that gives you a sense of the advanced political revolutionary consciousness of that period, which is going to have an impact on a new cohort of medical students, predominantly white, but who were being influenced by the period. So they were there. So Because they had been so successful in East Harlem, by 1970, the Young Lords start to look to the Bronx, which is the Puerto Rican borough, because a disproportionate number of Puerto Ricans are settling in the Bronx. They're actually being pushed out of East Harlem as a result of urban renewal starting a lot earlier, and they're settling in the Bronx. And so they start building a branch in the South Bronx, and they get connected with folks at Lincoln Hospital who've already begun to protest the horrific conditions 
in the emergency room, but also the fact that there's an attempt to shut down the emergency room or budget cuts are now underway because of the Vietnam War, right? All of the spending on the Vietnam War leads to retrenchment in terms of public spending. But also conditions are horrific in the emergency room. We know that the South Bronx has the highest incidence of of heroin addiction in the country. And they had already started the health campaigns in the Bronx, and they are going to continue in um, in that same vein. And they begin to organize complaint tables alongside of politicized workers who were already there, a cohort of women of color, poorly paid. So they they, they, they literally establish a complaint table for patients in the emergency room. And they collect thousands of complaints about everything from the fact that there is falling, that paint is falling from the walls of Lincoln Hospital. And the very children who are going there to address the crisis of lead poisoning lack of just the long waiting hours, but also translation. They're the Puerto Rican Spanish-only patients who are going to Lincoln Hospital can't really communicate with the doctors. So they, in the spring of 1970, they start working with with the hospital workers uh, and people in the community. They pull together this complaint table And they go through the channels. They attempt to bring these complaints to the administration, and it goes nowhere. At the same time, a cohort of residents, interns and residents, decide that they're going to come together to Lincoln Hospital as a group because they believe that this is the place where we can launch an experiment in dignified healthcare for the poor. And so approximately 20 of them, 20 uh, interns and residents, land there on July 14th, 1970. And the young lords take over the building with the blessing of these interns and residents on July 14th. They occupy the building to dramatize the horrific conditions under which Black Americans and Puerto Ricans are receiving care. It's a, you know, a combination of of social forces that make possible the work of the Young Lords at Lincoln. And it wasn't an easy collaboration with the predominantly white doctors who the Young Lords and others said were arrogant, were coming, were becoming radicalized, but as individuals were middle-class white kids from the suburbs uh, who often looked down on the activists they were organizing with. And and the middle-class, predominantly white doctors also said that they felt that the young lords and their tactics and approach was not the most democratic. But they came together nonetheless and did some pretty incredible things. Among the many things they 
they did was that they drafted the first known patient bill of rights, which is something that every hospital across the country and across the world now has publicly displayed when you walk in. The patient bill of rights argued and demanded bilingual services and translation services in the hospital. And it called for medical care organized around human need and not profit um, and a single payer uh, system, the works. It's so remarkable that the Lords, on the one hand, embrace this big picture world revolution, a guerrilla aesthetic and rhetoric, while focusing so much on service and protest that targeted often such ordinary, even banal seeming problems, because these were the problems that they were hearing about from people in the communities where they were organizing. And their first campaign wasn't about healthcare per se, but it was related because it was about sanitation. They called it the garbage offensive. They started with street sweeping, but that didn't generate a lot of enthusiasm. So instead, they dumped loads of garbage into the middle of the street, shutting down up and downtown traffic through East Harlem with, with garbage barricades, essentially, which that did, in turn, spark mass participation, including a bit of a riot. And it worked. They made sanitation a top political issue ahead of the mayoral election and ultimately helped transform how sanitation works in New York. How did the Lords bring this creativity and spectacular disruptiveness to their actions? How did, and how did that fit into the tactics of the new left era more broadly? And then how did they manage to combine this very kind of brass tacks, concrete service and protest work on the one hand with, with this bombastic revolutionary image and propaganda on the other? So I think it's important to recall that the Young Lords emerge at the height of this era of great dreams and they're influenced by the best of the 60s. And it's no surprise that they call their campaigns offensives in deference to the Tet Offensive of the Vietnamese a year later, a year earlier, a year before they emerge in 1968. And the Tet Offensive is probably the most important military campaign of the decade in which uh, the Vietnamese decide that they are not going to fight the Americans in the jungle, but that they are going to take the, the struggle to the city for the first time. And they're going to do it during their New Year, which is what Tet refers to, during their New Year celebrations, since they fought the French before the Americans, immediately after World War II in 1946, when the French-Vietnamese War began, everyone knew that the Vietnamese would not fight, that this holiday, the Vietnamese New Year, Tet, was sacred, and everyone had a day off. Well, in 1968, the Vietnamese decided to surprise the Americans and they took over the cities. Supposedly the most secure places most firmly under U.S. South Vietnamese control. Absolutely. And they took over quite um, dramatically the American embassy, uh, embassy in Saigon. This was important because journalists were able to capture the horror of war like never before. Uh, so this was the beginning of the end for American 
intervention in Vietnam. In any case, the young lords called their campaigns, all of them, um, offensive. So the garbage offensive, the church offensive, the hospital, the Lincoln Hospital offensive, the let offensive, and so on. And so part of what the young lords do is that they graft on to their activism and organizing and direct action, the logic of what they call urban guerrilla warfare, which is an application of guerrilla warfare tactics or guerrilla, the guerrilla war strategy to, to peacetime in urban centers. So they, during the garbage offensive, they, you know, they talk about how they attacked by throwing the garbage that they had collected over the course of days that had gone uncollected by the sanitation department into the streets, and then they retreated. And this uh, produced a crisis. People started getting involved, burned the garbage uh, in the middle of uh, the street and blocked traffic for, for blocks. At one point, the New York Times said that in one of the major arteries in the city on the east side, these garbage protests, what they called garbage dumping protests, had blocked traffic for over 30 blocks during rush hour. And in this campaign, they held plenty of press conferences wherein they they linked the absence of sanitation services in these poor communities to uh, environmental racism. But the racism implicit in in city or municipal policy and the unequal distribution of resources and services. What you say was perhaps most remarkable about the garbage offensive, amongst many things, but you say what is perhaps most remarkable about it is that though they believed that the heavily white sanitation workers were racist and discriminated against Puerto Rican neighborhoods, you note that they called for higher wages for those sanitation workers, an attempt, you write, to, quote, build solidarity with white workers in spite of what was already known in movement circles, that white workers had mounted resistance to racial integration in the opening up of union jobs to Puerto Ricans and Black Americans. This was quite profound and phenomenal to discover. And I would not have known this had the counterintelligence program of the FBI not not documented meticulously the organizing efforts of the Young Lords. So I found a flyer that the Young Lords distributed during one of their many press conferences that summer, the summer of 69, that listed their demands. And this is something that no Young Lord told me about, nor was it in any of the coverage in their own newspaper of the matter or the mainstream media for that for that matter. So yes, so the young lords were were socialists. And even though they identified the lumpen proletariat as the most revolutionary class in society, there had been a debate within the organization about the significance and importance of the working class as a site 
of struggle. So they understood that ethnic white workers, Italians, Irish workers in the city were unrepentantly racist, but they were part of the Rainbow Coalition. Whether the white workers knew it or not yet. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the Young Lords were part of the Rainbow Coalition, which sought to organize people at the bottom of society across racial lines. It's astonishing because these were very, very young people. The Young Lords were probably among the youngest members of the New Left. The youngest of them was 14, and then the oldest, I think, might have been 28. But the majority of Young Lords were... um, And to be so open-minded and big-hearted and savvy to be able to look past pretty intense and legitimate grievances with white workers. It's impressive. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty impressive. And I think that part of why they were so effective and so uh, open hearted and um, and determined is in part because they were organic socialists. They were probably among the most organic socialists in the history um, of the left in the United States, alongside of Black Panthers. These were the children of working class Puerto Rican. You write, quote, this was the first time in the United States that influential socialist organizations were launched, led, and built from the bottom up by young, poor, and working class people of color. From scratch. They were effective because being determines consciousness, or to paraphrase Marx, and they were able to articulate phenomenally effectively the conditions of poverty that they grew up with and that their parents suffered. And then they emerged at this moment of steep uh, radicalization and the rise of revolutionary consciousness and the rise of a sense that organization and discipline and a coherent assessment and analysis of the world was necessary. So they were perfectly positioned to do this work in the public sphere, the battle of ideas, the battle over what ideas are going to dominate. They occupied this liminal space, the space between the poor and the working class, but they were poor and working class kids who, who had access to a universe of knowledge and study that previous um, generations didn't have access to among people of color on this scale. And they took it to the bank. They, they took it all the way. They were evangelical. They were determined. They had revolution in their hearts and they were not equivocal about occupying um, the church or occupying the hospital. The question is, how, how are we going to do it? And how are we going to ensure that we have an impact beyond our numbers and that this becomes a subject of conversation in the evening news? So they were obsessed with projecting themselves in the media, in the new media of the time on television. 
you just mentioned the church occupation, which we haven't discussed yet. And I, for me, that was perhaps the most surprising of their campaigns, this attack on what they saw, saw as part of the conservative establishment within the Puerto Rican community at this church in East Harlem called the First Spanish United Methodist Church, where they engaged in this lengthy struggle with a Cuban exile pastor, but also many in a congregation made up of upwardly mobile, but still, I think, often working class Puerto Ricans that had moved out of the barrio that escalated into this dramatic occupation demanding the use of church space for their free children's breakfast program, which they, like the Black Panthers, had. And many listeners might be aware that that SNCC leader, James Foreman, led a famous protest at the liberal Riverside Church demanding reparations from these liberal institutions. But the Lord's occupation was a rather different thing, very, very internal to the Puerto Rican community in many ways. Explain the, the church offensive and why targeting the church was considered such a, a priority. I don't know that it was a priority. I think that they decided to occupy the church after a series of encounters with the church and its leadership, and mostly its, uh, its head pastor, who was in exile from Cuba, uh, who had fled Cuba in the aftermath of the uh, Cuban Revolution. So the Young Lords had been kicked out of a mouse house where they had uh, initiated a, um, a breakfast program that was targeted by COINTELPRO. So the counterintelligence program of the FBI, before we knew that it existed, had poisoned the well with the administration of of this institution. Uh, and it's essentially suggested that the Young Lords were gang members and that they were up to no good. So the institution that had allowed the Young Lords to to house its breakfast program there turned turned against the program and and kick them out in so many words. And the young lords were crestfallen, right? They are in many ways earnest about their determination to meet the needs of the community and feed the children. And they're being demonized by people who had previously welcomed into um, the building. So they go off to look for another place and they happen upon this church that's in the middle of the community. And they visit the church and ask, the pastor, if they could use um, this massive space that they learned went unused six out of the seven days of the week. So that's it. And then, of course, they already have a media uh, apparatus and a head of this aspect of the work of the Young Lords, who must have thought Pablo Guzman was the head of their communications um ministry, the communications ministry. And they wrote letters to the to the church and the pastor after they were driven away during a very brief conversation they had at the church with the pastor. They attempted to reach out to the congregation. They went to church on testimonial Sunday to attempt to to make their case to a bro- to the broader congregation that they had been shielded from by the pastor, it helped that many members of the Young Lords were familiar with the church, including Felipe Luciano, 
who grew up in an evangelical church and this was an evangelical church. So it was he who was like, okay, we got to go to the church during testimonial Sunday because that's when everybody's going to be there. And that's where we will be allowed to make our case as everyone, you know, testifies about how much they are going to give to the church and why. So on that Sunday, testimonial Sunday, which was sometime in December, two months after this back and forth had begun, the pastor invited undercover cops to um, bear witness to the Young Words activities in the church. And this became a bloody scene in which the young lords were literally beaten up by the cops, but the young lords also fought the police in the church in the aftermath of, um, or immediately after testimonials, testimonials began. So 11 young lords were arrested. Many more of them were beaten up. Uh, the National Lawyers Guild at this point becomes involved. Those are the lawyers who have historically, since the Red Scare at least, defended radicals and their right to free speech in New York and beyond. And, and so it was on. It was on. The young lords had been beaten up by the cops. The, the, the congregation was also aghast that there had been bloodshed. And, and so there was an opening with the media and with the congregation to persuade this institution to allow the young lords to use it as a headquarters of sorts, which is also something that the young lords in Chicago had um, engaged in at a church in Chicago. So part of what we're seeing, it's important for your listening audience to, to know, is that radicals have always looked for models of struggle and protest to follow. It's very hard to figure out what to do in the heat of an upturn in struggle. And so what the reason why the young lords succeed is because they literally adopt hook, line, and sinker, the organizational structure of the Black Panther Party. That means that they do not have to go through the years of thinking and debate and discussion internally that most organizations go through when they try to figure out how to, how to exist structurally. And they also ran with the notion that we see in Chicago that we, you know, we, we need to seek refuge and identify churches as, as sites from which we operate. For the young lords, in this particular moment, identifying a church um, as headquarters and sanctuary for activity is also about survival because on December 4th of that same year, 1969, when the young lords were embattled with the church, Fred Hampton was assassinated by the Chicago police in collaboration with COINTELPRO. So radicals like the young lords also are fearing for their lives and they're thinking it might be a little more difficult for COINTELPRO to disappear us if we're operating out of a church. The church occupation also seemed like an example of the Lord's emphasis on fighting not just racist and oppressive and exploitative systems and institutions from outside of, of 
Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican United States, but but very much their their emphasis on fighting against conservatism within the Puerto Rican community, particularly anti-black racism, and also this related desire to sort of attempt to follow a white ethnic path of assimilation, even as it was becoming very clear that that path was not open to Puerto Ricans by and large. So initially, the young lords just wanted to use the church to feed breakfast to children, which was one of the programs, you know, the um, serve the people signature programs, right? The signature programs of the Black Panthers and the Young Lords is sort of the children program. But very quickly, as the conflict deepened, the Young Lords developed a critique of the church and Christianity as a colonizing force in um, the United States and the Americas. But they also decided to, to elevate and uphold liberation theology and the teachings of the revolutionary Jesus. And they literally quoted scripture to that end that it was Jesus who said that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so this became the site from which they launched a social service sanctuary for the poor, which they ultimately envisioned as a prefigurative vision of the new socialist society. And at the church, once occupied, they invited the doctors that they had previously worked with at Metropolitan Hospital, which um, was undergoing budget cuts. They invited those doctors to set up shop and to set up a free clinic at the church. They also established uh, a liberation school that taught Puerto Rican history, but also uh, Black American history. And they transformed the church at night into a stage for the revolutionary artists of the period to present their um, vanguard creations with, with the community. They also had a dinner. They had a dinner and they invited all those who were hungry from the community to, to dine with them um, at 7 p.m. And then that turned into this joyous celebration of revolutionary art, the revolutionary art of the period. So in many ways, the, 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 the church was, was the center of socialist praxis um, and militancy. You write, quote, On the surface, the young lord's strategic and irreverent campaigns resembled those espoused by Saul Alinsky, father of modern community organizing. But Alinsky had a narrow conception of community work. Labor journalist David Moberg captures its logic succinctly. Don't talk about ideology, just issues. Build organizations, not movements. Focus on winnable goals. By contrast, the young lords were hell-bent on bridging all of these worlds. This is a sort of debate and, and question that organizers continuously 
face. And it might, and I think what the young lords experience and what your work on them shows is that the discussions can kind of be premised on, on a false div- divide of sorts, or or things being unnecessarily mutually opposed to one another. Explain how the lords navigated between this more kind of narrow Linskyite community organizing model on the one hand, and this more ideologically explicit political revolutionary approach on the other. Right. So part of what we see happening throughout American history is anti-communism. And Americans recoil from this idea of building organization, but also building a revolutionary disciplined socialist organization with an assessment of reality drawn from a Marxist framework. I think that the young lords were successful in building a revolutionary party, but also building a movement to things that are often thought of as in conflict or diametrically opposed, in part because they were not alienated and didn't think of themselves separate and apart from the people they were organizing. They also were effective and intoxicating and alluring in part because they had their finger on the pulse of the moment aesthetically and politically. So they they reflected the, the culture and preoccupations and politics of the new left. And what are those among them? A belief in the significance and importance of launching struggle that challenges the individual to be born again, to shed the sexism, homophobia, internalized racism of the system. They believed in in the liberation of the individual. I think that's one of the foundational politics of the of the new left. I want to talk more about the group's internal workings, which we just touched on a little, how it used democratic centralism to relate leadership of these various ministries, which were represented on the Central Committee, to a secondary layer of leadership, to rank-and-file cadre. How were leaders chosen for their posts? How were decisions made and carried out? How were cadre recruited and trained? And to what degree were they able to be both truly democratic and centralist over time? Because ultimately— and we'll get into more detail on this at the end of the interview, things got pretty bleak. The organization took on the framework and organizational structure of the Black Panther Party. That means that it was organized around a series of ministries, the education ministry, the field ministry, and the field ministry was in charge of expanding the organization to new places like the Bronx, figuring out how that would actually happen, what would be its best site of operation. But also the field ministry was very attentive to new members who might be infiltrators. It had a health ministry at some point, a communications ministry, and it had a steering committee. And each member of the steering committee led each of these ministries. 
so it was a command organization in many ways organized uh, to reflect possibly the revolutionary army that might uh, liberate the country or the countries that were being that were fighting revolutions against colonial rule in the third world in places like Vietnam and Algeria and elsewhere in Cuba. So there were areas of work, right? Like the health ministry and the health ministry was led for some time by Juan Gonzalez, by the way, but he had a deputy minister with whom he worked to figure out how to integrate others into the work of the health ministry, uh, members of the organization. And they said that it was a really messy process. People were chosen on the basis of their willingness to work and their ability to lead. And you write that that for the lords in training who are who are or candidates to become cadre, that the real test for them was running the breakfast program, which required getting up early, getting kids to the program, cooking, like really hard and kind of potentially kind of boring and arduous work. Right. So before one became a member, one was usually a friend of the Lord's and later a Lord in training. And eventually you became a young Lord. And the organization established a series of 13-week political education uh, cycles to bring new members up to date on the politics of the organization, what it stood for, the 13-point program. They read Franz Fanon, they read Samarx, they read Che Guevara, uh, a hodgepodge of literature of the period that usually was chosen to reflect the themes of the 13-point program. Folks had to memorize the 13-point program of the organization, but also its rules, the rules of the organization, among them that you are to be a young lord 25 hours a day. That was one of the rules. And so there was this political education uh, regiment that sought to very quickly politicize and uh, put meat on the radicalization of new members. Reading, by the way, was mandatory in the organization. And there was a time in the evening where all members of the organization were expected to read. So there was this education component. There was the pre-membership work where, as you suggested, uh, members were tested um, in the most, you know, unforgiving area of work only because you had to wake up apparently at five o'clock in the morning to prepare the food for the breakfast program. And you also had to get the children from the homes of the folks who had signed up for the breakfast program if they were not going to bring them to the breakfast program. And then you had to take the kids to school. And then after that, you had to show up to the office and give in the work for the day which was staffed by 10 lords at a time from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m., which is remarkable. Yep. So they had a pretty disciplined, well-thought-through operation. Not only were were you a young lord 25 
hours a day. I mean, what that meant was many lived communally, ate in a shared mess mess hall. Most did not hold paid jobs, but those who did contributed more than half of their earnings to the Young Lords. Yep. And they raised money uh, in part with the help of many of the rumba and salsa musicians of the period who were friendly to the message and the um, organizing of the Young Lords. And you ask the question about democratic centralism. What the Young Lords describe is that these areas of work, like the health ministry, determined, its, its members determined what they would do and how they would do it and how they would organize in the community. And so there was some level of independence and independent thinking at the level of the ministry that was also then reinforced or taken to the steering committee by the minister of uh, the, the head minister of that of that ministry, in this case, Juan Gonzalez. And so there was a flow of politics from the top of, of the organization to the bottom and from the bottom to the top. Uh, but mostly what the Young Lords say is that during the first two years, there was a very dynamic culture of political debate and discussion where there was disagreement even among the leadership about all kinds of things from is the working class more important than the lumpen proletariat to the organization's position on cultural nationalism to all kinds of other things. And that disagreement and debate and discussion, the cadre shared with me, helped the rank and file uh, learn, learn Marxist politics. You know, uh, one member of the organization, Gilbert Cologne, said that the person assigned to him to see him along in terms of his politics at one point told him, well, why don't you answer the question that he posed to him? Go read this, that, and the third. Let's argue it out next week. The benefits from having so much labor power and commitment at an organization's disposal are, are obvious. But you write that, unsurprisingly, that could cause major problems, too. Right. And I think it's important to note that the cost of living in the 1960s and 70s was a lot lower than it is today. So folks could afford to leave their jobs or school or stop living with their parents and still eke out a living and pay rent by living collectively, but also through the monies they got from selling the paper, by the way. They sold the paper and were allowed to keep half of what they got from the sale of the paper. But yeah, this kind of 25-hour-a-day revolutionary activism made it very difficult for working-class people to join the organization especially when the organization stopped engaging in local organizing and they abandoned community organizing when the group moved to Puerto Rico to organize a struggle to liberate the island of American imperial rule. It stretched the organization beyond 
its capacity. And that kind of 25-hour-a-day ethic, it just became very insular and cultish. Yeah, and ultimately, this is the problem that a lot of left revolutionary organizations encounter. How do you keep an organization that's this disciplined and organized around a set of theories? How do you keep it breathing and how do you keep it connected to the grassroots and connected to everyday everyday life and relevant to, to whatever's going on in the moment? How did dominant ideological currents of the era, which by no means were particular to the Young Lords, but were certainly prevalent within the Young Lords, this iteration of, of communist politics that read Lenin through Mao and so led to this emphasis on extraordinary cadre sacrifice over objective conditions, and that also, as you write, adopted a sort of preachy moralizing tone, both toward the public and internally, perhaps most problematically evidenced, again, this is far from unique to the Young Lords, in this sort of intense criticism and self-criticism session that everyone had to engage in, this kind of unforgiving culture ultimately is not one that people remain a part of over time. You know, I think that this is uh, not particular to Maoist politics. I think this is something we see in communist and revolutionary socialist organizations in the United States. The moralism and the evangelical character of commitment that's required. But in this case, in many ways, um, the survival programs of the Black Panthers of the Young Lords had that feel. The slogan, we serve the people, had that flavor of, okay, we're, we're meeting the needs of, of the community through our hard, self-sacrificing work. And we see it in the, in the politics of the guerrilla army, that the guerrilla army descends from the mountain and overthrows the colonial power. The Foucault theory. The Foucault theory, exactly. And so I think that when the young lords were connected to community and were leading a project in East Harlem, but also working with other segments of the community, nurses and hospital workers and doctors, and eliciting participation from people in the community, they were kept uh, honest and grounded. But as soon as they became removed from on the ground organizing from the grassroots and as the possibilities for revolutionary change became bleak as a consequence of conservative restoration in part domestically the young lords like the black panthers and other groups be- became just obsessed with with heavy theoretical readings uh, and there was absolutely no balance between between theory and practice. And that that just led to, to isolation and further isolation. But also, it wasn't only the Maoist proclivities of these organizations. It was also the disorientation and isolation that was instigated by, by COINTELPRO. 
and all of the horrific work of manipulating interpersonal relationships and eroding trust among people who thought of themselves as, as brothers and sisters. I mean, that's, that's the worst poison you could spill in the culture of an organization, turning people who loved each other and who grew up together and struggle against each other. Police repression is critical to the entirety of the Lord's story. And what's interesting is that initially you write, quote, the goal was to avert an escalation of police violence and resist unlawful arrests. The young Lord's organizing approach differed from that of the Black Panthers. Their more tempered approach to police misconduct curbed adventurous tendencies among younger rebellious recruits who might have been quick to engage in isolated and risky one-on-one confrontations with police. And even many in the Panthers, notably Fred Hampton, shared this perspective. There's this remarkable passage in your book and a great photo accompanying it of this moment I did not know about that during the 68 Democratic National Convention, the Rainbow Coalition that the Panthers in Chicago organized with the Lords and Young Patriots, they held a press conference and countermarch opposing, quote, the armed struggle orientation of the Days of Rage actions organized by the Weatherman faction of Students for a Democratic Society. Hampton said that there had been, quote, too much talk about armed struggle and not enough work organizing the people. And so there was, even amid all this kind of revolutionary militant pick up the gun rhetoric, a really kind of sober understanding of what concrete organizing required, but but repression really took a serious toll on these organizations and, and kind of warped their calculus, you write. And for the young lords, that particularly came about after the death of Julio Rodan in the tombs, the infamously brutal New York City jail, after which they mounted a second occupation of the first Spanish United Methodist Church, this time an armed one. And you write that though the lords did not ultimately turn into a, a guerrilla organization the way that Eldridge Cleaver's BPP faction did, they did undertake a similar retreat from U.S. political reality to run a revolution from the third world in Puerto Rico rather than among third world people at the heart of the first world in the U.S. Explain this turn, which ended up, which which culminated in this kind of disastrous relocation to Puerto Rico and how repression facilitated it. First of all, I'm glad, I'm so glad that you captured um, and paid attention to that moment. I think in chapter one, when I explained that Fred Hampton, in fact, during the Days of Rage protests, organized the march alongside of Chacha Jimenez into the working class neighborhoods of Chicago, Black American, Puerto Rican, Mexican, and white. That's what he argued needed to happen. We need to um, neutralize these fights with the cops and and broaden our message uh, to people at the level of the community and the working class of the city. The Young Lords, interestingly enough, as early as 1969, had been collaborating with these healthcare workers, part of the working class, a new layer of the working class, working class women of color that didn't go to college, graduated from high school, 
and were absorbed into the new, this new industry as workers, technicians, like social workers, assistants, and the like. And they met them at Metropolitan and some of the hospitals downtown. And, and they encouraged them to, to lay roots and build their own organization at Lincoln Hospital, which is where Atrum comes from, the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement. The Young Lords were part of a conversation that was held in the fall of 69 when the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement people came from Detroit. They literally brought the health workers to this meeting and encouraged their own independent working class organization, independent from uh, the union at the time, Local 1199, which was perceived to be um, a collaborationist union with uh, the administration, the city administration and, and hospital management. Okay, so the Young Lords grow tremendously after the church occupation. At some point, they had to stop accepting members because they were not able to properly absorb them. They continue to do work at Lincoln Hospital with these workers. And uh, the question of Puerto Rican independence and organizing in Puerto Rico happens right when they are deepening their connections with Lincoln Hospital and gaining ground in many ways. At the same time that they're organizing at Lincoln Hospital in summer 1970, a number of them go to Puerto Rico, invited there by students at the University of Puerto Rico who are launching struggles against the ROTC on the campus of uh, the University of Puerto Rico. The Rio Piedras campus that has long been a, a center of radicalism on the island. Exactly. So they go and they speak there and they get an incredible reception. And um, one of the members of ATRUM, the Health Revolutionary Unity Movement that's working at Lincoln or some, in one of the other hospitals, she is enamored of, um, of the work in Puerto Rico and she is a strong Puerto Rican nationalist probably a cultural nationalist. And she, um, I think, is very critical to the derailing of the work of the Young Lords domestically and the transferring of half of the organization and its resources to the island. She has a huge impact on the leadership. The leadership votes on um, this move to Puerto Rico. And interestingly enough, the vote is divided on racial terms, on racial grounds. Like the black Puerto Ricans and the black American in this central committee votes against the move to Puerto Rico and the predominantly white Puerto Rican members of the organization vote to transfer the organization or half of its resources to organize for Puerto Rican independence on the island. And to embrace a, a more narrow nationalism elsewhere in a place that they have many connections to, obviously, but it turns out it's not really a place where they're entirely from or entirely understand. 
Right. And in the middle of all of this, absolutely. And in the middle of all of this, prior to that vote, one of a member of the Young Lords is, is arrested for no good reason by the NYPD. Two members of the Young Lords are arrested and they end up at the tombs, the infamous tombs, where there had earlier been prison uprisings in the summer of 1970. And he is found hanged within days of having been jailed. Uh, that's um, Julio Roldan. The Young Lords had tried to send him uh, messages, but the messages never got to him. It, it appears that he had a mental breakdown, which was not uncommon in the tombs because um, the level of noise at the tombs was constantly like what it sounds like in the New York subway during rush hour. He appears to have hanged himself. The young lords didn't believe that, and they had good reason not to believe it. This is at a moment when movement people and people of color in particular are being killed by the police, Black Panthers, heightened repression, and the young lords decide to take over the church with arms. At the same times, at the same time, they weren't loaded though. I don't think they were loaded. There was an infiltrator, clearly, because the records of the of the of COINTELPRO literally identify the um, the arms that the young lords had acquired and had in the church. So someone in the security team was COINTELPRO. At at around the same time, Felipe Luciano, the very the loved chairman of the organization, is demoted. In a very sordid and weird conflict. Yes, I mean, listen, it's a long, it's a long, <laughs> it's a long story. But yeah, it there, you got. You got to read the book. It's I know it's like so crazy. <laughs> um, and it's likely that there was COINTELPRO involvement there too, but Felipe Luciano was essentially. Uh, demoted for breaking the rules of the organization, disappearing without telling people, and also engaging in an extramarital affair. And so he was demoted. But what I understood when I was, you know, thinking this through and looking at the at the record and the interviews and the COINTEL profiles is that it was in the interest of the woman who was arguing that ultimately argued that the group should go fight for Puerto Rican independence on the island, she was gung-ho about his demotion because, and ultimately he left the organization because he couldn't deal with the demotion. She was pushed, yeah, she was gung-ho about that because if Felipe Luciano would have remained in the organization as its chairman. He was probably the only one who had, who would have been able to argue against the move to Puerto Rico. He would have clearly said that this was going to split the organization on the grounds of ethnicity, that Black Americans, when the group decided to leave to Puerto Rico to organize there. To close out, on, on the island that the Young Lords 
found themselves way out of their depth. Many didn't speak Spanish. They tried to apply a model that had worked really well in New York and other places to a totally different context. They struggled to, to orient themselves to the island's political scene, including to, to radical independence activists. And all the while, their powerful organization in the U.S., which had accomplished so much in just about two years, began to collapse. Given this moment of historic uprising, what is apparently the largest protest movement in U.S. history by far, what should those of us who are building left-wing organizations now learn, both good and bad, from the Lords? Government repression and reaction is cohering as we speak, and we have to be attentive to that reality. And we need to mobilize and attempt to at least address or speak to the sectors of society that could help us neutralize repression and win. So I'm thinking about the dock workers who struck for a day not too long ago in defense of Black lives. Uh, I'm also thinking about all of the workers whose small protests during the COVID crisis suggest that they were politicized and radicalized because those people have power that those of us work at the level of the community do not have. And it's a gargantuan struggle in the United States where the union movement has been decimated. I think less than 10% of the American working class is, is unionized. And those who are belong to unions that are not whose union leadership, whose leadership is collaborating with, um, with the ruling class. Uh, so I, I think we need to figure out where are the levers of power? How do we build militant organizations and campaigns that paralyze business as usual? That's what the Young Lords did beautifully, even though they did not organize at the point of production they were able to, to paralyze business as usual. They took over a hospital. They took over a building, a, a, a church. Um, they stopped traffic. And they didn't do it once, right? These one-off actions don't really work. They, they said, we are going to do this over the course of July and August. And they were at it every day, stopping traffic in one of Manhattan's neighborhoods until the mayor showed up and said, all right, already, what do you want? And then they didn't meet with them. They had other people meet with them because they didn't want, you know, they believed in independent politics, politics independent of the electoral process or at least the two-party system. So I think that actions that identify the levers of power um, on the ground, but also that paralyzed business as usual are important. I also think that the Young Lord's evangelical commitment to human liberation is important. They were able to do everything they did because they were not equivocal. They were all in. And in many ways, that energy built on itself. And once they initiated a process 
that was big and dramatic uh, and dreamt big dreams, it was very difficult to reel back from it. Once you take over a church, you can't just walk away. You got to turn it into something. Um, and it grew and they didn't do it alone. Everyone and their mother came to the church. Literally, it became such a thing that um, Huey P. Newton sent his lawyer to, you know, to give greetings. Uh, people from around the country and internationally descended on the church to, in solidarity. Political education around a structural analysis of social problems, important. The conversations that are having to, happening today around abolition and the role of the police and the fact that in the United States, the police and its DNA is intravenously connected to the institution of slavery, that needs to be mainstream. There are conversations happening, but we need organizations that are, and, and that is happening. Like with, there's the Occupy City Hall situation downtown that's doing that in a beautiful way. But this analysis of the structural racism and white supremacy of the police and the role of the police in society um, as an institution um, organized to keep slaves in their place and return as slaves, escape slaves back to the plantation, but also as an, as an institution that emerges to break the back of an emerging working class in the North and to break the back of strikes and to keep and protect private property. This is, we need this. And the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, they were churning this propaganda out like hotcakes um, in a very deliberate way. They also had a sophisticated media strategy connected to direct action, right? In many ways, we have beautiful media actions going on on Twitter, Instagram. It's incredible. I think we probably need to get better, the organizers of this moment, at connecting what we do on the ground to paralyze society and business as usual with a media strategy that helps those organizers control the narrative. They, like other, like other segments of the left in history, the best of them, the Young Lords really amplified the centrality of Black American oppression and anti-Black racism and its origins as pivotal to any movement for freedom in the United States. Uh, and they educated Puerto Rican members and also African-Americans and others about the centrality of the Black American experience to the birth of capitalism, its connection to slavery, and the, the structure of racism in the United States. That was like our daily bread. And you know what? The Young Lords led with humor, honesty, and creativity. They made even their detractors take a second look. Uh, and also, their they were crazy about, they had demands, they put out, their, everybody knew what their demands were. There was no question. They had demands for breakfast. What are our demands? These, these are what they are. And this is why we need them. 
and as I said previously, it's not an easy task and it's up to a new generation of activists to figure out, but they were able to, to marry the building of disciplined revolutionary organization with the building of the movement broadly defined. And oftentimes, unfortunately, the left and left revolutionary organizations stand on the sidelines of social movements, picking at them and criticizing them for this, that, and the third. And the young lords found themselves at the center of a social movement attempting to offer a more long-term project for fundamentally transforming society. Well, Johanna Fernandez, thank you very, very much. Thank you so very much, Daniel, for this thorough conversation. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you reading the book so so meticulously. Johanna Fernandez is professor of history at Baruch College at the City University of New York and the author of The Young Lords, A Radical History, out now from University of North Carolina Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our fast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. That's what really counts. Please make propaganda for us. And last, but by no means least, do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. (music) 